Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm a president and professor of Old Testament here, and I'm joined by a little bit of a skeleton crew. Uh, we're coming off of our graduation weekend, and so Dr. Grace Utanto is not with us, but I am joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Peter Lee, Dean of Students and Professor of Old Testament, and Dr. Paul Jean, Instructor in New Testament and Senior Pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in Tyson's Corner. So what we're going to do today is actually something kind of like what we did with the Psalms. Uh, this is going to be Romans Part 2, but instead of um, like with the Psalms where we had done a huge intro and never actually got into the book, uh, we've done a good overview of the book and we thought, you know, Romans is one of those rich, you know, literary edifices that uh, you really need to stop and kind of touch on several different issues that arise in the book. So these are kind of looking at what we might call the the troublesome passages, or we might just say the more debated passages, the ones that touch on what people consider to be hot topics. So this is kind of a troubleshooting Romans episode. So we're going to go through and just talk about a couple of chapters in our you know brief discussion before we started. We said, you know, we need to look at chapter five. We need to look at chapter seven, chapters nine through 11. They're all kind of dealing with some important topics that still come up and are highly debated in the church. And so I want to start with those and um, we're going to work our way through and see if any other issues arise as well. So these are uh, our considerations. These aren't meant to be definitive, but they are our considerations on these issues. And in some places, we might even say, hey, there's a couple of really valid interpretations here, but these are the issues that you should be considering um, as a reader of the book, as you're developing your own conclusion on how to understand some of these more difficult passages. So with that, let's start off with chapter five. Let me put it over to you, Dr. King. Talk to me a little bit about chapter five and why that's been such a meddlesome section of this book. Yeah, I, Meddlesome's a good word. I, I think of chapter five as, as it's one of those passages that has, there's a lot of debate surrounding it, but it's also just really important to the overall structure and tenor of the book. Um, and that doesn't always get appreciated how just key it is for Paul's overarching argument. Um, Romans 3 and 4 gets a lot of attention because it's in that section where Paul talks about, you know, we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved by faith, faith like that of Abraham. And he uses that passage in Genesis to, to talk about how both Jew and Gentile will live by faith and receive this righteousness that comes from faith. So especially in our circles, that gets a lot of play because of our, you know, of our, our, our call, our clarion call of sola fide. And Romans 5 feels like an epilogue to that discussion. But in reality, Romans 5 is architectonic. It is the big master framework for how Paul thinks about salvation in general. It, it, it's, the his summary of God's dealing with sinful people, um, and and so it's central to the overall argument of the book, and it provides the what I'd call the redemptive historical backdrop within which Romans three and four make sense. So it's it it, it can be meddlesome because the argumentative logic of the of of Romans five seems kind of 
uh, back and forth. It's hard to follow at points. And yet when you get the big framework in there, essentially we, you know, Paul's Adamic Christology in there, it becomes helpful for understanding the rest of Paul's argument. And I would, I think the rest of Paul's theology. Maybe it would help to uh, maybe specify what exactly is Paul's Adam theology there in Romans 5 that, that you were alluding to. Um, Paul's argument, the, the central component of which is starts in verse 12 of, of chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in my translation, there's a little dash there before you get to verse 13. And it says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And that feels a bit like a hard left turn because it is. Paul is interrupting himself there. He, he, he you know, you read that verse 12, just as sin came into the world and you're expecting a kind of comparison, right? Just as this, so that. And you don't get it. You, you don't get the, the B clause that is comparable to the A clause. So uh, what do you do? You keep looking for it. Where's the B clause? Well, <laughs> it doesn't really happen uh, until verse 18. So we have a five-verse interruption of Paul's argument. And that that's the first kind of challenge for interpreting Romans 5, is just following the argumentative flow. You need to get out your pencil and paper and do a little discourse analysis and all those kinds of things that we talk about in hermeneutics. But really, if you keep reading, you'll find verse 18 really is completes the thought. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so, we got our, finally got our so, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life uh, for all men. So at the center of this argument is a, a distinction between two persons, between two federal heads. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if we're going to understand the relationship between those two, why those two individuals, why these two federal heads, it's because Jesus is the new Adam. He is second Adam. He is in Adam's role. And yet, unlike Adam, who living the life he lived, brought curse and death to all men and Romans 8 to the cosmos, this second Adam brings justification and life, righteousness, because he served, uh, he did the will of, of his father, served God faithfully, died a sinner's death, became sin for us, and was raised into eschatological life. He then is the, the second Adam, and you, as God's people, are either in the one, the first Adam, leading to death and curse, or the second, who leads to life and righteousness. So this that union with Christ theme, but framed in terms of all of history, the big narrative story of the Bible as a whole. I love this because you get the picture of Christ winning the prize that Adam had lost for us. And it, it creates this picture of human history as this great failure where, where we are, after which we are all waiting, we're all longing for someone to come and do what Adam failed in doing. And the Old Testament in many ways is kind of a catalog of all of the attempts and all of the possibilities, all of the hopes being offered, whether it's the nation of Israel or Solomon as the son of David who starts his reign so well, trying to, to say, who, who can do it? Which one of us will run the race? Which one of us will achieve the goal? 
which one of us will, will make it to the end. Mm-hmm. And Paul presents Jesus as he's the one. Finally, someone did it. Finally, someone came. It's so important because it also highlights, so it, it makes that central, uh, uh, it makes Christ's humanity so central to his work. We often focus in the Christian church and in apologetics and theology on Christ's divinity. And yet here, Paul's making a really strong argument. It's very important that Jesus is really, verily, truly man, right? Because he needs to come and do what Adam failed in. He needs yep. to come and win. He needs to run the race. So when you come to Christ, you're not just coming to someone who loved you so much that he sacrificed for you, which is true and that's wonderful, but we're actually coming to someone who has achieved the thing that humanity had lost to its great peril. And we're saying, I'm with him. Put me in, yep. put me in his camp. I want to receive his inheritance, his reward, not the reward that Adam had won through his failure. Yeah, and that logic I think really helps unpack Romans five. If we if if you jump from twelve all the way there to eighteen, Romans five just kind of fits together. It it makes sense, and it's not a complex point. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. But then there's of course two issues that are raised historically. If if that's the case, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. The two issues that are are kind of pop out of that very simple assertion is, well, okay, well, what's going on from Adam to Moses and what's going on from Moses to Jesus? These two redemptive historical periods of time, why why the delay? Why not just bring the Christ immediately uh, after Adam and Eve sinned against, against their God? Um, and then that's the rest of Romans 5. And, and he interrupts himself to talk about sin as a covenant of creation, sin in response to, uh, you know, in general principial terms. And then in verse 20, now the law came in, and I read that as now Mosaic, the Mosaic covenant came in to increase the trespass. And so he gets, he, he, he does a little bit of discussion of the, these two redemptive historical epochs amidst the big narrative, the overarching story, the framing narrative of, of from first Adam to second Adam. And this, it's interesting is that this passage is the passage that really sparked John Calvin's interest in the relationship between the old and the new mm-hmm. and planted the seeds, at least in Genevan Reformed theology and Calvin's Reformed theology for a biblical theology. What we would later yeah. call biblical theology or covenant yeah. theology. It's impossible to not do biblical theology in a passage like this. I love the term you use, Tommy, uh, uh, architectonic, you know how it's, it's sort of a structural uh, pillars in the uh, kind of in the building of a history of salvation, and and how there are certain uh, key uh, concepts that you really need to grasp, mm-hmm. not just for the reading of Romans, but really to understand the uh, the history of salvation. I think it's a very Voss Ritter Voss type of uh, type of phrase that uh, that you use. It. it it does reinforce to me the importance of understanding then, for that reason, a, a covenant to works idea with Adam and then with Christ as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, you know, in many ways the gospel is at stake if you don't properly understand uh, the covenant uh, of works idea in the way that the first Adam failed in a covenant of works, thus requiring the need of a second Adam. Yeah. Um, and, and how many ways our, our redemption is 
uh, foundationally built on the accomplished work of Christ as second Adam, mm -hmm. meaning that it had to be merited by someone. Our salvation had to be earned by someone. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do it. The first Adam failed. We couldn't do it. Thus, we need uh, a second Adam. Uh, you know, in our day, in the last uh, several years or so, as there's been such an outcry for justice of all sorts, I think it's important for us to remember that as Christians, we hold to absolute pure justice, uh, divine justice without any form of, of uh, you know, human error in, in courts or anything like that. We're talking about the divine court. Uh, we believe in pure and uh, 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 justice of God, and we can see how our justification is so grounded in the accomplished work of Christ as second Adam mm -hmm. and how foundational that is for Paul here in Romans 5 um, uh, and uh, and in other places as well. Yeah. And the, the, this idea that Jesus takes upon himself the judgment, right? The one that, that, that we deserve that it's, again, a lot of Christians believe that kind of, if you come to Jesus, it's just sort of like God forgives and forgets because now you're on his team or something mm -hmm. like that. But rather... When you come in Jesus, now your judgment, which you rightly deserve, and it's right and good and beautiful that you deserve that judgment, is now put on Christ. Right. And uh, you now get to receive the award, the reward that he won on your behalf. And that's why it is. I mean, that, that kind of idea of penal substitutionary atonement to me is very, is very important because it makes sense of the logic of God's good, gracious, but also just character. He's not just kind of forgiven, forgetting, or like just erasing, you know, what you did, but it has to be meted out. It has to yeah. be judged and it's right. good. We, all of us who are calling for justice in the world, it's good for justice to come. And that's true for you too, Christian, right? And so, you know, when you go into someone with the gospel, you're presenting them their ju judgment. You're saying here, come and be judged in Christ. Much better than to be judged in the final judgment. And that's precisely where Paul goes after after doing this kind of redemptive historical perspective on the, the story of the world through the, through the lens of Adam on the one hand, Christ on the other. He then transitions to the the effect of this on the believer, that our 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 participation in Christ in Romans six, seven, and eight. We've died with Him, and so we will live with Him mm -hmm. in Romans six, uh, Romans seven, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, our life with Christ, and then Romans eight, this zooming out to this cosmic perspective, the glory of the world will be revealed through the revealing of the son and sons of God. And this all just kind of working out the implications of being in Christ as a believer. Well, I, you know, I was thinking about this is somewhat of a tangent, but this is also why you have to believe that Adam was a historical figure. Mm. Because oh, yeah. if you think that he was simply a mythical figure, there are a lot of there are a host of problems that come up, but that means because there's no doubt Paul thought he was a historical figure, and so if we suggest that Paul was wrong, then we can't help but think what else was he wrong about. That, that's a good point, and that anticipates the Romans nine through eleven discussion too. I think that's a super important point that we often go right to symbolism or typology on these questions, and we miss for Paul a lot of this is just organic progression one person lost another person won, won 
All right. Yeah. The first atom lost later, the last atom won. You know, it, it, it's an organic relationship. It's not Adam as a symbol. And then Christ is kind of having a symbolic victory or something. This is a natural organic progression. Right. And I think he's going to argue the same thing about Israel too. He's going to argue that there's an organic pr procession from Israel of the old Testament to the people of God of the new. Yeah. The, the necessity of history for Paul is something we we shouldn't miss that these are historical categories for him. In addition to being theological categories, Breda once famously said that Paul's religion is his theology. And we could take it even a next step further and mm -hmm. say his theology is his history, that yeah. it's, Im it's embedded in the framework of God acting in space and time for, for his people in particular works. Yeah. That's great. Well, okay. You've already touched on this issue then let's move on then to Romans seven and often cited and yet much disagreed upon passage in which Paul reflects on someone. It's, it's a bit of a, a, he goes into kind of a monologue as Paul is wont to do sort of a dramatic monologue of a back and forth about someone who is struggling with sin while still loving the law. And the question is, is this a Christian? Is this not a Christian? Is this some kind of ideal dialogue? Um, how should we think about this? Well, there's also another perspective that Paul or the speaker is a Christian, but explaining a perspective of a non-Christian that he can now discern as a Christian. Did that make sense? <laughs> I'm not sure. sure that means sense. But no, no, he, he yeah. can explain it from a Christian's point of view, yeah, but that. he's talking about someone who's not a Christian. Regenerate. Yeah, so okay. that would be a third option. Okay. Yeah. Thoughts? Well, wait, did we? what were the three options? <laughs> well, or you can add your own. This is, I, I argued that this is, it's either a non-Christian he's talking about, yeah. it's a Christian, or it's an ideal, or we could say eschatological, if we want to say that, some kind of eschatological thing. And then I think the third one would be, I think, I think it's a, it's a qualification of the first one, right? Yeah. Paul is speaking as a Christian, About remembering his, yeah. or reflecting on the non-Christian experience. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd add one to the list um, made popular in the new perspective, but also there in Ritterboss in, in some forms as well. The idea that what we have described here is a transition from the age of the law. What does it look like to be, obedient under the obedient faithful israelite under mosaic covenant what does that experience look like and then what is the experience of faithfulness to god as the people of god under the new covenant in yeah. in jesus christ so there's yeah. this transition period from under the old and faithfulness under the old to faithfulness in the new by the power of the spirit that kind of thing so let's unpack that one then what how does that work then when he says I do what I don't want to do. What I don't want to do, I do. Yeah. So under that, the reading of this transition from old to new, that would mean that under under the old, there is this desire to obey the law, to fulfill the law in my you know in my flesh, as it were. But I don't have the assets. I don't have the power. I don't. I don't have the ability to do that because. You know, if we look at Paul's broader theology, because the spirit hasn't come in its eschatological fullness. And so there is always a kind of limit, a limiting factor to our ability to. So an argument to against live. perfectionism in a mm -hmm. way, right? Mm -hmm. 
And that's, I mean, that, that makes sense given the introduction of the chapter where he's using this analogy of a married woman who's bound or then, you know, if there's a death and the spouse is now free and right. he's kind of, he's kind of dealing with the old versus the new. Yeah. That first section there, that, that analogy is really, is really persuasive. It, well, I guess it's strong evidence for that that idea of transition out of one covenant into a new mm -hmm. and better covenant. Second Corinthians three would be a parallel discussion that in view of how glorious the new covenant is, the old covenant is a covenant of death. It, 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 it's a taskmaster. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's that reading of this, uh, of this passage. I think that theology is in Paul. Um, you, you can get to some of those kinds of, the, 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 those kinds of theological points in a second Corinthians three in maybe a Galatians two and three. I actually don't think it's in view here for, um, because, because of the things that Paul says about um, uh, well, because of a couple of lines in here that just don't seem to uh, fit. It seems that Paul is talking about uh, who will redeem me from this body of death. Um, it seems that Paul's talking about his present state of affairs. Mm -hmm. who, who will redeem me from this state that I am currently in? Uh, praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he says, I mean, it, in this passage, he's, it's interesting his choice of words. Because I think, what are, what are the phrases that make you think he's talking about someone who's not a Christian? He says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Mm -hmm. That's unique language, but you think maybe he's maybe that's talking about someone who is not regenerate. Okay. Um, or elsewhere, he says, I, I don't, you know, I, it, down in verse 20, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And you might think, well, how is this true? Usually he talks about the spiritual person dwelling within yeah. him, right? And yet elsewhere, he talks about loving the law and yearning for what is good. And he's already said, you don't yearn for what is good. You don't yeah. love the law yeah. unless the spirit is within you in faith. So it's, you know, he, he's, he's making a strong argument. No doubt, right? He's trying, I think he's trying, he wants us to feel the tension. He's not sugarcoating it, as you might say, like, hey, right. listen, I know we're all saved here and this isn't really a thing, but, you know, he's really making, yeah. he's making it in a strong way. And I think that's probably where some of the confusion has come from because he uses some of the strong terminology, but you're right. He uses really specific terms. He doesn't say I'm dead, right? <laughs> um, he doesn't say I'm unregenerate. He yeah. said, and he says, and he's yearning to be freed from his body of death. It's interesting when he, how he says that. Okay. Yeah. Like in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then it seems like he needs to qualify that. That is in my flesh. Yeah. So yeah. that, that tension, he seems to be highlighting over and over again and highlighting it as a present experience, as a present reality. So would... If, if this is the case, would we say that this is an expression of this experience of a Christian being sanctified? Is that is that how we might describe this? Should a Christian read this and say, yeah, that's how I feel? Absolute. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> Paul, do you want to? We can go back. No, let's go back and forth on it. Because I, 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 I'm actually conflicted on this. I just had to teach on this in the last semester. In the Bible study that we had yeah, here, I heard and I, I sat outside the door I, listening to that. Yeah, I, I, I'm conflicted on it because yeah. of the language that he uses here. And so I, the, what I just gave you is the view that I yeah. kind of ended on, but I'm still conflicted on it. So, so I feel conflicted about it as well. And I, I kind of would want to say at this point that 
all three views, the non-Christian, this is a non-Christian, that this is normal Christian life, and third, that this is the transition from mm -hmm. an age of law to an age of, uh, of, of the faith fully realized in Jesus Christ. They're all orthodox views, or at least they can be yeah. incorporated within an orthodox framing of, and, and a confessional framing of redemption. So that's important to say. Right. And in my own my own sort of experience, I remember the first time I was invited here to teach Acts and Romans. Uh, many, did, we get, did we give you this passage? Many moons ago, <laughs> right? Um, we got to this passage and, you know, and I'm so proud because this is like the one area where like I'm free from the constraints of respect for my mentor. I actually disagree with Gaffin about this passage. And I, it's like, see, I'm not Gaffin's parrot. I'm, I'm, Gaffin I, I have my to Ritter boss's position. Yeah. Right. Gaffin, or, or no. you know, Gaffin disagrees with Ritter boss's position. Oh, okay. Gaffin takes the normal Christian life view. And I was very persuaded by the Ritter boss, the redemptive historical view. Um, and so, but I'm prepping my notes for class the next day. And I had to change my mind. So, oh no, <laughs> I am Gaffin's parent. I do, oh, I do okay, agree okay. with his argument. So, I, I mean, I, I feel conflicted as as well. And I don't think that that's a, a problem. I think yeah. actually it goes to the complexity of our relationship to the law, to obedience, to the desire to do good at, at every level. Yeah. This is a passage where I feel like if Paul was in front of us and we knew Paul, we know exactly what he was saying. Yeah, this is a this is a way that he talked and communicated, and it was clear at the time. But having just a written text, yeah. for good or for ill, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, is it's a little harder, and so there's some more ambiguity. Well, you you want him to to speak it, yeah. Like he he's the whole text is built on this equivocation on the word law. The law is a covenant. The law is a, a moral obligation. The law is a power or force like the law of gravity. You know, he just yeah. vacillates between all of these uses of the word. And I feel like if we heard tone of voice, yeah. it would really help. Yeah. Yeah. I have not come to a definitive conclusion. Um, the text is complicated too, but I think the question that Scott asked was, uh, how a believer should or should not be able to relate to this. And I think that's sort of a different question in terms of um, like whether the person here is a believer, unbeliever, and all of, all of the above. I do think just in terms of that question, if we are alive in Christ, there should be a growing struggle against sin I, I i don't want to be dogmatic about that and obviously there are seasons when we can become hardened in our hearts and so forth but i think that when we are made alive in jesus there is a new sensitivity or awareness uh to sin that if it is um absent for i would even say decades there's um something to be concerned about but mm. I don't know if you all would Amen. agree with me on that. No, no absolutely. <laughs> There's wisdom to that. I yeah. mean, it's sort of, you know, like David in the Old Testament, when he, you know, violates Bathsheba, premeditatedly murders her husband, the bigger, or not the bigger issue, but just as big an issue for me is the fact that he did all this and wasn't bothered at all. He had no burden of conscience. And it was only later when he was confronted with a third-person narrative that he came to terms with just not 
the fact that he sinned, but the fact that he sinned without a blink of an eye, mm -hmm. it didn't bother him at all. That's the time to be concerned. There is a, a incredible freedom that comes from understanding a grace-based perspective on life that allows us now the freedom to see the depths of our sin that we perhaps could not do before because we didn't understand grace. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why the tendency of humanity is always towards moralism, to see that we're right and to fight for our sense of good standing because the opposite is our own condemnation. We won't face that unless you understand grace. Mm -hmm. But if you understand the grace of God, you are free now to probe the depth of your heart and to see the corruption that is there. And it can be startling at times to see how horrible and how, you know, I think somewhere in here, Paul talks about, you know, the, the reality of covetousness. It's not mm -hmm. just the outward expression of, of law that he violated, but the motive of the heart. Mm -hmm. Once we start probing that heart level, I mean, that's where I suspect a lot of, um, people that that we minister to are really going to struggle i mean we don't really murder we don't really steal but in terms of the heart sins of murder it's theft and adultery if we really are honest with that then there is a sense in which i think this is a very real experience mm -hmm. for believers on a day-to-day -day basis i don't want to lust but i do <clears throat> I, I don't want to you know be envious but i am you know i i don't want to uh, be rebellious in my attitude towards professors or pastors or parents, but I that's that this is who I am, uh, and I try to do what I can, but I can't avoid it. Uh, but praise be to God that I'm not that I'm not condemned, and so it, it just seems to me that if we really understand grace, it gives us a freedom to see the steps of our sins and to be genuinely repentant of it. Uh, so the greater we understand grace, the more in tune we are with this type of you know, self-recognition that gives us now the ability to really repent fully in a really healthy, robust way. Mm -hmm. I appreciate everything you've shared. Like recently I've been doing some work on Galatians. So I've been reading a little bit more on the new perspective. I, I had taken a break for a while. And one of the interesting comments that new perspective folk tend to make is that Paul didn't really convert um, upon meeting Jesus. But along the lines of what Peter just said, I think his, not just his cognitive understanding of sin, but his actual ability to understand sin and feel it did change. And I think we might see evidence of that in this passage where he's able to understand not coveting in a way that maybe he had not understood before. And so I, I think that a passage like this does point to what you and I would consider a conversion experience where he was, if I can say, because gray's not here, ontologically different or mm -hmm. essentially different. And so I, I would consider that a conversion where he is a fundamentally different person because of grace and because the spirit is in him that was not before, that was not the case before. Hmm. That's good. Let's move on to chapter nine through 11. Easy peasy. <laughs> Yeah, after this, after this current discussion, here's the easy one. So what about Israel? And I think this is also another one of those cases where Paul is using words in different ways as he's kind of um, working through this issue. I remember teaching a class on redemptive historical themes, and it was a two-credit mm -hmm. elective. And we kept coming back to Romans 9 through 11 
to the point that we finally, you know, at, at the second to last class, we just dedicated the whole class and we opened up Romans and just walked through Romans 9 through 11 <laughs> to try to understand what was going on there. And some students said that was the first time, like I kind of clicked what you guys are saying here, you know, in biblical studies is sitting here and, go, here and going through what Paul is teaching us. So Paul's using this language of, um, of Israel. He, he starts it off talking about Israel. Um, he talks about there being uh, an Israel that is believing uh, and an Israel that is kind of, in this case, he seems to be using flesh to really mean something like bloodline or genealogy. So there's Israel according to the genealogy. And then amongst those, there's the Israelites who are, um, you know, of the promise or of the spirit, true Israel. Um, we should point out that this whole conversation follows the arc that ends with him saying, who has known God and who has been his counselor. So Paul himself ends in a place of humility mm -hmm. saying, this is a very difficult topic. But in the over the course of those three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, he works out how we are to think about Israel, both Israel of the flesh and Israel of the promise, as it were, how we are to think about Israel in this current context that we but we all live in but for him is much more fresh which is that you have a context in which a growing uh majority of the church is gentile and not jewish and he's reflecting on the reality that messiah was not received wholeheartedly by ethnic national israel when he walked the earth okay and he's trying he's sort of reflecting it's in the background of all this what are we to say about Israel and the law, did it all fail that they didn't accept him? What should we think about Israel? And so that's kind of the the background to this conversation. So, um, any thoughts as we jump into this topic? There's a lot to be said here. I mean, there's like I said, there's a lot to be said here. But it, we always have to remember this follows Romans eight, 8, where Paul basically ends by saying, "Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus." And then he predicts the question, well, it seems like something can separate yeah. us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so that sort of frames the discussion. And despite the complexities here, I have still found it very helpful to use the phrasing where Paul begins to distinguish between ethnic Israel and elect Israel. And um, I think that that's what mo most of this chapter or this section is about. Yeah, and he says that, I think he makes that distinction in chapter in verse 6 and 7, where he makes this point, so has the has the word of God failed to Israel? He goes, Mate, you know, of course not, for not all who have descended from Israel, and in that case he means Abraham, mm -hmm. are Israel, and in that case he means Yeah, he directly all equivocates. Of the yeah, 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 right. So he says, not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel and not all, unless you missed what he meant by that, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, right? Yeah. So he's making this distinction already between this kind of genealogical crew and another category. It's, it's a really important to notice that at, at the very beginning, because by the time you get, you've as a reader, you might have lost that yeah. distinction by the time you get to Romans 11. Um, I mean, all of this kind of heads into the big debated verses, which is 11, 25 and following. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware. A partial hardening has become a, a, come upon Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And a lot of the debate on that passage assumes that the Israel, in both cases, means the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's already established in, in Romans 9, that, yeah. and we've seen in Romans 7, that he's perfectly happy to equivocate on words, that, yeah. to, to play with words in such a way to make a deeper, broader point. And yeah. so when we when we address the overall structure of the passage, we've got to remember what what, what you just said. Well I can I can even see him, yeah, you know, this is this is me maybe being a form critic and imagining the the the, <laughs> the the oral background to the text, but I can see him going, not everyone is Israel. Right. Exactly. And yet you can be Israel, you know, kind of yeah. thing. You know, in Christ you're Israel, but you're not Israel or something. You know, he's making this kind of like distinction in the way that he talks about it. Um, you know, I like how he puts it together. He's very, very lawyerly. He starts with the most obvious proof or point of precedence. He says, not all who are descendants from Abraham are Israel. Case in point, Isaac and Ishmael, right? Ishmael's a descendant. He doesn't go into it here as much as he does in Galatians, but he goes into it in sort of an implicit way. He goes, for instance, the blessing comes through Isaac, right? Ishmael's in the line of Abraham, but it doesn't go through him. It goes through Isaac. So not all offsprings, not all offspring are the recipients of the covenant promises. So he kind of, he begins to unpack this idea. Uh, he then goes on to Jacob and Esau, right? And this is, of course, where that the famous passage that all yep. young reform folk learn to memorize because it <laughs> sounds like predestination, which it is. It's talking about that, but it's talking about it very specifically. It yep. says... God even planned that it would be Jacob, right? This is a part of God's elect purposes. This is not about the word of God. Remember his question at the beginning. Did the word of God fail? No, no, not at all. This is part of his plan. And what do you have? You have Esau, who is not of the covenant line, and Jacob, who is of the covenant line. And of course, you then maximize that down. Any reader of the Old Testament is familiar with the fact that Israelites all over the Old Testament are apostatizing, uh, and being judged accordingly, being called not Israel, not my people, mm-hmm. as in the exile, the Lord powerfully, you know, um, the prophet Hosea, you know, makes that point. They are low on me. They are not my people in their judgment. You know, there's this, there's this a clear doctrine of the Old Testament that it was never, you know, here's the, here's the money line. It was never merely a genealogical right. principle. Even contrary to many modern day Christian teaching, it wasn't like bloodline in the Old Testament and faith in the New. It was never merely genealogical. It was always about faith and worship. Amen. I mean, it it, it really, um, any like replacement theology is, you see, it's already off target. That's not not what's happening here. It's Mm -hmm. not like it was ethnic Jews. Now it's Christian church. It has always been a spiritual Israel from day one. Yeah, yeah. Amen. And Paul has a very practical point about that to the Gentiles. And we're not going to be able to talk about all of 9 through 11, but there's a huge section where he's turning to the Gentiles and he's saying, you think you're special? You think, you think you're think you here because, you know, you're great? He kind of Deuteronomy 7s them. No, you, you're you're here because God chose to to open up this space of mercy to the Gentiles. You're here because they were faithful and that they have now, uh, you know, and, and now their rejection of Christ means that you are you get to be grafted in. Yeah. And the warning is, don't be like them mm-hmm. who were cut off. That all of those stories are now used to. They're all about you. Remind Gentiles yeah. to not be arrogant that they're that they're there because they're special or better or more obedient. 
I love that. I mean, as an Old Testament prophet, I find myself coming back to this because you see how much Paul, again, is interested in this organic continuity between the old and the new. He says, this isn't new. There's, this, there's precedence for all of this. Um, they were his first love. They're the older brother. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Gentiles don't get cocky. In other words, is what he's saying, right? And then he's going back to the Jews and saying, but they are grafted in. They are part of the tree now. They're grafted in. They're part of the vine. Um, you know, so you got it. You have to accept them. But it's interesting here. I mean, really, Paul's kind of laying out. He, he's downplaying in this passage elsewhere. He'll outplay it. But he's downplaying the newness of the people of God. And mm-hmm. he's really saying this is how it's always been. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only difference now is that where in the Old Testament you had maybe a Ruth and a, or a Rahab or a Naaman or a Uriah the Hittite, now they're all over the place, you yeah. know. But but they're in just like those folks were in. I mean, I mean, no, no one can no one can doubt Rahab and Ruth's presence in the covenant people. They're in the line of David and in Messiah himself. So they're definitely in, but they're much more common now. Why? Because God's making you jealous. Yeah, this is like the flip side of what was happening in the old covenant. Uh, you see that in like eleven thirty. Just as you were, you Gentiles were at one time disobedient, but now have received mercy. So they too have now been disobedient in order that you might receive mercy. It's just the flip of. Yeah. Yeah. And why did God do it this way? So He might consign all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. Yeah. So to to get the older brother and the younger brother in there as recipients of the mercy of God. That's why you're here. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Amen. And I love that he ends, he ends with Isaiah. As Isaiah is looking at, you know, in Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 55, as he's looking at the exile coming, he goes, well, why this? Why does it have to be this way? And God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Right. My ways are higher than your th- ways. This is the other place where that clearly happens. You have Paul reflecting on basically the fact that Israel didn't receive Messiah mm. to a throne, mm. but sent him to a cross, right? And he's, he's responding to that. And he's saying, I don't know why it's going to be this way, but God's perfect plan is good and just, and I trust it, you know? And so he ends on that point of humility, um, uh, which is so powerful. He ends actually mm. the point of doxology, right? To him be the glory forever. Amen. So it's a super interesting passage. Um, I would say that nested in there, by the way, we, we kind of skimmed over it. But when he says, uh, when he goes through how Israel will be saved, if you kind of go back and read that in context, he's saying it's through salvation by faith in mm-hmm. the same way that it was in the Old Testament. Yep. It's faith language. It's being called to the worship of the Lord. Um, it's not some kind of new arrangement per se. Now there is a new newness, obviously, which we can point out. There's a newness to this. We're now united with the risen Messiah, uh, the ascended Messiah who sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, right? There's a newness to this body. We've, we've, uh, we the rest, we're the restoration kingdom. We're what Moses said would be the father, the, the returnees who would be blessed, Deuteronomy 30, blessed even greater than the former fathers. We're, we're enjoying that blessing. So there is a newness to it. And yet there's this real organic continuity with yep. the old. Well, we only talked about three sections, five, seven, and nine through 11, but I think we covered a lot more theology during the course of that conversation. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's great having this conversation. I always learn something from you all, and uh, I hope this was beneficial to you listening at home. Thanks for being with us in this trouble, troubleshooting episode of, uh, <laughs> of Romans in our Reader's Guide series. We'll be back with you again next week. Until then, take care. 
you'd like to know more about RTS Washington, come check us out at our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can start a conversation on how to take classes here and have deeper conversations like the one you just heard. And you can also, if you're interested, post questions to this podcast. Go to the show notes uh, of the podcast and you'll see a link there where you can post questions and we will address them in future episodes. We should have a call-in episode. Okay. (laughs) Have our family members call in. (laughs) Hey, this is Sarah in Vienna. (laughs) Long-time listener, first-time caller. I think that Dr. Tommy Keen is awesome. Yeah, I can see Gina calling and saying, "Hey, on the show," and my kids in the background, "Hey, why are you lying? <laughs> <laughs> totally why are you lying?" <laughs> okay, right. let's, cl- let's land the plane. Plane then. All right.